This isn't archaeology. It's barely piracy. Dad, maybe a little less complaining and a little more digging. Oh, Dr. Jones? Yes? Look what I find. Oh, I don't believe it, Shorty. It's another lost podcast episode. Be careful with that, Junior. Some things are better off lost. Greetings and salutations. Are you a Heather? Hey guys, this is Rish Outfield. Greetings, as I said, from 2019. You guys are in 2020, uh, unless I'm terrible in my planning, which I am, but come on, I'm trying. And I originally recorded this episode, or, or this intro, in 2017. Now, if there was a miracle and I found that, what are they called, the chips? I always forget. It's a mini information disk that you put inside. It's a, it's a chip. It's a card. It's a chard. Uh, if I ever find that with the 2017 message on it, then we can disregard this. Uh, I'll be frustrated either way. But this is the episode where I am finally releasing into the wild uh, my book, The Calling Reunion. And in 2017, when I finished the story, I grabbed my recorder and I recorded a message for you guys. I said, hey, it's 2017. It's, I don't know what it was. Let's say it was August. And I just finished the book today and I'm so excited that I had to record this for you guys. When I put it out, uh, you can hear my enthusiasm. You can hear that I'm proud of myself, that I've, I feel like I've accomplished something. I hope that you guys like it. And <laughs> cut two years, two and a half years, three years, and it's finally being, it's finally coming out. I have a little bit of a drive, and so I thought I would talk about it. And if you, well, I was about to say, if you're not a fan of my writing, then this might not be the episode for you. But look, if you're listening to the Rish Outcast, then either someone has played a cruel prank on you, or you're a fan. I can't see any middle, any gray area, unless like when I did um, Pigeons from Hell or when I did Soul Cleaver Clarence, those people, those writers have maybe their own fans that came to my show because of that. But this is, I have no such crutch in this episode, so I'm assuming that you're a fan of mine. And I appreciate that you're a fan of mine. There's got to be a, another explanation, a fourth possibility for why you're listening to this. I can't think of what it is. I'm recording this at the end of 2019. Big Anklovich and I just had a conversation, and he's really interested in bringing the Doonstief back in a major way. Well, let me tiptoe on this. He is interested in making the Doonstief a priority in his life again. Is that okay to say? And that's great. So that probably means that we'll be, there will be more episodes of that coming. And that's fine. The Doonstief was a major priority for me for years. And it has fallen by the wayside, but I care about this. I care about writing. I care about doing audiobooks. And I care about you guys. I care about the people who are fans of mine. Whether you came to me from the Doonstief, which I would think the vast majority of you guys did. We worked hard on that podcast, put our hearts into a lot of our talent and sweat. And at the height of our, I almost said popularity, but we were never popular. At the height of our renown, I guess, we were never, well, at, at our height, we earned some loyal fans, and I really think that's great. 
See, now I'm wanting to talk about something else. I don't know. We'll see. I'll talk about what I talk about. The Dunstief is something that I do for free. And because I have some loyal Patreon supporters, I do the Rish Outcast not for free. Can you see the difference? For years, uh, I have encouraged Big to do a Patreon fund for the Steve. And I know what you're about to ask. Rish, you hypocrite, why don't you do a Patreon for the Steve? And the answer is the same reason I don't do a Patreon for Delusions of Grandeur, my podcast with Marshall Latham. Marshall uploads those episodes. I can't do a Delusions of Grandeur without Marshall, even though I've done two. That's our show. And for a partnership to work, two people have to be invested in it. I mean, what the hell? I could go and create a Patreon fund for the Steve today. I wrote a script for the two of us to record for, you know, welcoming people, encouraging people to support us. But we never even recorded it because I didn't feel like it was worth it. That was in 2019. You were in 2020. And it may be that Big is super into the Steve in 2020. And so, yeah, we can sit down and do that and bask in the, the tremendous success. Yeah, wouldn't that be ironic if the Steve Patreon brought in just tons and tons of money and fans and the Rich Outcast one, which I've been doing for years, didn't. But, you know, I understand. Nobody loves the, what is it, 60-foot bride of Big Candy Rock, the movie that Lou Costello did without Bud Abbott. Nobody cares about that. Am I digressing? I am digressing. What I wanted to talk about for a moment was George R. R. Martin again and Game of Thrones. Let's put a pin in that. Let's put a pin in that topic and we'll, I'll come back to it in a few minutes. The Calling was a story that I wrote in 2013 for the Steve, for one of our Broken Mirror story prompts. It's been long enough that you may not remember, and that's fine. The prompt for that story was that the phone rings in the middle of the night. The person on the other end only says one word, but it is enough. And I really turned that over again and again and again in my head, trying to figure out what kind of story I wanted to write, and then what kind of word are we talking about? A word that's powerful enough that all only one word needs to be said, and something interesting happens. So I came up with a story where the word, the one word, was what they call a trigger word, for someone who had been, not brainwashed in this case, but hypnotized. So they hear the word and the post-hypnotic suggestion triggers them. And I wrote that story and it was a comedic story. It was, it was light. It was, not, it was not a big deal and it was not good. But I kept thinking about it. I had fulfilled my obligations, you know what I mean? I had written a story with that prompt in mind. I kept thinking, and I thought about a word that means enough to somebody that when they hear it, they know what has to be done, or they know the truth, or they know it's a revelation. It, rosebud that kind of thing. And thinking of that, of what is Rosebud? What does Rosebud mean? You know, the, the critically decided greatest film of all time, that is your, your premise. 
a, a famous rich man's last words were, Rosebud, what does that mean? And so I thought, okay, what could that be? And I came up with the idea that that was a name that a character had called his son when the son was little, when the son was a newborn. Okay, I like that. Why is that important? And so I thought, okay, there's a target. A target has been painted on someone, but we don't know who that is. Maybe he's a Secret Service agent. Maybe he is a policeman. Maybe he is in the FBI. Maybe, you know, Homeland Security. Maybe he's a spy. Maybe he, maybe this is a sci-fi story. So that person has a target painted on them, and it's his son. And only he knows that word because only he remembers when his son was one and they called him, let's say, Rosebud. And then I thought, no, it's more nefarious than that, that your son has a target. It's, there's a traitor in your midst. We don't know who it is, but when we find out, we'll let you know. And they call and it's one word, Rosebud. And nobody else knows what that means except this guy who used to call his son Rosebud when his son was one. And he's just like, oh my gosh, how could my, you know, eight-year-old son be the traitor? Do you see how stories change and metamorphose, if that's a word, uh, mutate, ideas compound upon each other, become other ideas, Eventually, I was just like, okay, so how can the traitor be an eight-year-old boy? And then I thought, well, what is one of my favorite tropes? One of my absolute favorite things to write about? Beings masquerading as children. Your eight-year-old son is the traitor because he's not your eight-year-old son. Gosh, it sounds good when I put it that way, doesn't it? So I came up with this idea of... There's a family of monster hunters. And I don't know if I had this idea that they destroyed all of the monsters years ago, 15 years ago. And so this guy who was young uh, in, during the monster war or whatever has retired and moved out to, to California and had a family. Uh, and then the phone rings, you know, that, that we, there's one more monster, Rosebud. And that became... There's a family that hunts monsters in human form and this guy breaks away from that family. He doesn't buy into their doctrine and he goes and tries to have a normal life. He encounters somebody, his best friend, his mother, his father. I ended up choosing his twin sister he sees her after 16 years or something like that. I can't remember how long it was. She tells him that the monsters are still out there. He tells her there are no monsters. Our family was depraved, mentally ill, whirling in a religious frenzy, a religious mania that caused them to see monsters where no monsters were. And the sister says, no, they are real. I've seen things. I know things. If you hadn't run away, you would know too. And I've been sent here because there's a monster and you're in danger. Where is the monster? And she says, well, that's the thing. You know, they can look like normal people. And he's like, enough of this. I'm sorry, you know, that you feel like I have abandoned the family. But I did. The family is not good. I ran away. I'm sorry that I ran away from you, but I don't believe in any of it. So he goes home and can't help but think about what his sister has said. And he turns it over in his mind over and over again, like Rish Outfield trying to plot out a story. And he says, what if she's right? What if had I stayed in the family, I too would have gotten this calling this voice that tells members of my family when monsters are near. 
And suddenly, he gets the calling. He gets the voice in his head. Uh, Joshua's voice manifests as a smell. He can smell when they're near. The phone rings, and it's his sister on the phone. He knows it's his sister by her breathing. She says one word, and it is the pet name he had, not for his son, but by this point I had changed it to his daughter when she was a little girl. So he runs up stairs to check on his daughter, and she is playing with her dolls, but not in a normal way. There's something wrong with the way that she's playing with her dolls. There's something wrong with the fact that she's up at 2 o'clock in the morning. There's something wrong with the way she's looking at him. She is a changeling, you know, a demon pretending to be his daughter. She comes at him, I think it was with a meat cleaver, it might have been with something else. The sister breaks into the house and shoots the daughter dead. Josh is freaked out and he goes, runs across the hall to check on his son. His son is in bed, he grabs his son, he, he's going to get out of the house. While he's on the stairs, he stops because he smells the voice again, super, super strong. It's coming from his son. And that's when he discovers his little boy, I think the kid was like five, has a butcher knife. And the last thing that Josh sees is his son swinging the butcher knife into his eye. Uh, the end. Hey, when I put it that way, it sounds really great, pitched in that way. And like I said on that Steve episode, or like I probably said in the afterword to my published version, when I pitched it to my cousin, he thought, this is really good. Where, where is this from? You know, like, where did you steal this? Where did you see this? And that made me feel even better. It was probably the closest I ever felt to my cousin is that he had sat there listening to me pitch this story and enjoyed it all the way to the end. I found that encouraging. And so I worked really hard to get that story written in time for the contest. I entered it and uh, it did quite well. It was very well received when we ran it to the point where there were people that suggested, well, why end the story there? I mean, there were also people that suggested if the story's in first person and the narrator is killed at the end, how is he narrating the story? So I added a coda when I published the story where Josh survived. He lost his eye, but he survived, and his sister is nursing him back to health, and she says we've got a lot of work to do, and that's the ending of the story. So it's, it's got a sequel set up there, and I don't know how many copies I've sold. Not enough. But I never stopped thinking about the story. I ended it in that open way for, for a reason. I kicked around writing a sequel. What would the sequel be about? And... In 2017, I kind of got this idea of, well, the next natural step is that while Joshua is convalescing, he gets to know his sister a little bit again, and then eventually they go back home, and he is reunited with the McGinty clan, with his family. What happens there? What is his family like? How is his family different now that he's an adult than it was when he was a kid? And essentially that's what The Calling 2 is. And that's why I called it The Calling Reunion. Uh, is Josh goes back and is amid all of this again. 
I had established in the first story that his father had died. So you don't have that reunion. But he, you know, of course, is with his sister. He is with his cousin, who was a younger cousin that idolized Josh and Jan when they were teenagers. He runs into his mother again and his grandfather, Grandpa Gregor, who was a throwaway character in the first story, just sort of a symbol of how cold these people were. The only thing that Grandpa does in the first story is they kill a guy and he tells Josh, this is Josh as a little boy, spit on it. He wants Josh to spit on the dead body of this person that they have killed. Because there are more characters in the sequel, it naturally became more complicated. And I don't know if I pulled off how, in fact, I'm sure I didn't pull off that complication. I, the, the, what I cared about was the character of Josh and the character of January, putting them together, letting them get to know one another again, and Josh thinking a lot about, did I do the right thing? Am I, am I a good person? What kind of person abandons his family? But also, what kind of family would drive a 16-year-old to abandon it, to give up on everything that he had? What kind of family is this? What am I going back to? And of course, yeah, there are also monsters. There are all, you know, the changelings. I get to expand or explore what their nature is. And uh, I, I sort of got to make up my own religion, my own hierarchy of what the McGinty clan is and how it operates. And that was very interesting. I don't know if it's interesting to read, but it was interesting from my perspective to develop. And there is a theme to the story in the same way that there was a theme to the first story, but it's the opposite theme. Uh, maybe we'll talk about that in a second. When you put something out on Audible, they require you to do a five-minute sample and that people can listen to for free because it tells them what kind of narrator it is, it tells them the pace, it tells them the tone. Hopefully it tells them in that five minutes whether or not they would like the book. It's smart. They do it on Amazon also, although I think on Amazon it's like the first five pages or maybe the first 10% of the book. Or Now that can't be because if it were a thousand page or 1500 page Brandon Sanderson book, then you would have like 150 pages for free on Amazon. And that, that's just crazy. Brandon Sanderson. There's that name again. What will we do without Brandon Sanderson? What could we become without Sanderson? Sorry, somebody liked that that I did the other day. It, it's, it's, it's childish of me. But doesn't mean I'm going to stop. So I'm going to go ahead and share this the, the, the sample, the, the, you know, the, the, the part that you put on Audible with you. And then I will come back and we will talk about, we will talk about what we've learned. Ugh. Something in the store had gone bad. Or worse, one of the bathrooms might have... No. I had smelled this before. That night. This was the calling. Immediately, all my muscles seemed to tighten up, the way they did when you got an ice cube down your back. I slowly, casually, took in those around me. There were only a handful of other customers, probably less than a dozen in the whole building, and none of them seemed to be... There was a man 
flipping through a magazine in the automotive aisle, his profile to me. He was black and really skinny, maybe twenty, perhaps as old as thirty. He was not human. He was a changeling, even though there was nothing particularly special or ominous-looking about him. I needed to do something. Maybe tell January about him. Maybe... Maybe not. Maybe this was my chance to find some answers. January had been over on the far wall, where all the cold beverages were kept. I checked to see if she was still there. She was, just now turning my way. She didn't look around the room, but instantly met my gaze. It was like we had some kind of telepathic connection. Which, why wouldn't we? We had the same blue eyes and sixth sense about boogeymen. January's brow furrowed as she watched me, an expression of concern on her face. It made her look kind of like Mom. Okay, I would not go to her for help. I went, slowly, casually, to the automotive aisle. There were the usual shelves of antifreeze, oil, and washer fluid, but there were also flashlights and tools, including a fancy-looking screwdriver with multiple swap-out heads. I grabbed one, peeking back at January to see if I was still being observed. My sister was gone now. So I walked right up to the bony young man, jabbed the Phillips head end into his ribs, and muttered, Walk with me like a special agent would in a movie. "'Hey, what?' the man said. Quietly, though. "'Ow!' I took his arm and physically made him walk, right beside me, to the end of the aisle, and straight through the front door. The electronic bell went off as we passed. "'Do I know you?' the changeling asked me, still not yelling, still not calling for help. I found that odd. Keep walking, I said, and led him around the store to the side, where there was a dumpster and one of those coin-operated air machines for tires. This one was out of order. We were out here, in the late afternoon light, but seemed to be unobserved. What was my next move? Let's chat, I said, which I had to have stolen from a movie someplace. I don't got any money, he said, in a high-pitched, junkie-in-a-blaxploitation-flick voice. Me either, I said. But I do have a weapon, so keep still and answer my questions. He studied me with wide, scared eyes. What you want, man? I could smell something unpleasant coming from the dumpster, and nearby cigarette smoke but in between those two, I could smell him. Something more exotic, but definitely worse. Out of nowhere, I was flooded with anger. A part of me, some remnant of my teenaged rage, wanted to just start thrashing this guy, or seeing what damage a screwdriver could really do. Drop the act, I said instead. I know what you are. The black guy hesitated, as though he had no idea what I was rambling about and confusion was overcoming his fear. But then he stopped and simply did as he was told. You're one of them, huh? He said in a calm, unaccented voice. That could have been my line. Should have been, probably. The changeling sort of went slack like a soldier no longer standing at attention. I haven't seen you before. Which group are you part of? The Mesesecs? The McGinties? The Epselbergs? McGinties, I said. Those other two names had no significance to me. Does that mean there are other people who know about you? Other families? Ah, it all amounts to the same thing, he said. Just another name for a gun, a rope, that knife you hold. It's a screwdriver, I told him. Look, I know you want to kill me, 
and if my sister sees you, she'll have no problem killing you. But I want a few answers. Then you can go. Bullshit, man, said the changeling, a bit more like its jive-talking host. You know who I am. That means you're a killer of our kind. Not me, I said. Not if you tell me what I want to know. The creature squinted at me, and there was really no clue that he slash it was not what it appeared to be, except for the calm way it was standing when a stranger was threatening it. We call you demons, I began. But what are you really? A hint of a smile appeared on its young face. You know why you call us demons, right? Because everything you people don't understand is either demons or devils. Like a little group of children without enough education to label things correctly. It was a criticism, but one I could totally understand. Okay, where do you come from? What are you? It shook its head. If I answer that, you'll find a way to use it against me, to hurt all the ancestry. No, I w Ancestry. Is that what you call yourselves? Much better than demons. Well, yeah. Are you aliens, then? Spirits? What? The man-slash-pretender didn't make a sound. I wanted some answers. Maybe only three or four. Maybe a dozen. But at least something. So, you know, as I always say, it, 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 even with that burst of confidence of uh, cousin really liked it, I won the contest. I still have to have the caveat of I don't know how good a book The Calling Reunion is. All I know is that I did the best that I could. There are ideas in there that I really like. I really like the character of Josh. And... It's even though it's uh, the familiar trope of shapeshifting, uh, it's still unlike any story that I have written, in my opinion. And it tackles themes that are dear to me. But okay, yeah, let's put a but on there. It's it's f fairly adult, and it doesn't end with a the end. It ends with a to be continued. It's the middle story in a trilogy. And I was surprised when I compiled my writing, because this was a book that I had written in longhand in notebooks. I no longer do that. Once 2019 hit, it was like, I'm stop with this crap, because it, it takes so long to retype, sorry, to type up everything from the notebooks. And there are stories that I've written that are still in notebooks that will never see the light of day because I don't like them enough to retype them. But if I had just written them on a typewriter, oh gosh, I am dating myself. If I had just typed them to begin with as I was writing them, then they would be there and I would say, well, there's no reason not to put this out. I just decided that it was better to stop with the notebook thing. And then in late 2019, I got a new laptop that's not crap. You know, I say that with an asterisk because there was an entire story that I wrote that was lost due to the very first time this laptop ever crashed. And that was upsetting because I was saving as I went. But because the file was open when the laptop crashed, when I opened the file, it was just empty. It was blank. It was 13 pages of blank. So I guess I, I, I have to qualify that. You know, but it's still I'm still 95% pleased with it. Maybe even higher than that. I I bought a, a laptop and it wasn't very expensive, but I I bought it when I didn't have any money. And if it means that I will publish more and I will put out more audiobooks, then 
it's worth it. It was worth the splurging that I did to get it. Sorry. When I typed up the document and compiled it all, I was surprised at the length of the calling reunion. Uh, I was surprised that it was over 50,000 words. That makes it a novel rather than a novella or whatever the first story was. Um, and that makes me happy because I've never considered myself a novelist and I'm a short story writer and I'm content with that. But people will tell you you can't make any money with stories. You have to be a novelist. So many times I will read a book or listen to an audiobook and I can feel how padded they are. And I wonder about how many of those were novellas that just got expanded and expanded until it's finally 600 pages. I don't know. This one wasn't like that. It just sort of got away from me. And to my surprise, it's a book rather than a story. And that's cool. But yeah, oh, that's what I was going to say. The story sort of took me where it wanted to go. Once I decided where I wanted the story to end, and I can't give that away because it's the very end of the story, but I set up a couple of things building toward that because I knew that's where it was going to go, and I, I was really excited to get there because I wanted to know how will Josh feel about this? And so I wrote the story to find out. But there is a little bit of... Uh, some. There's some dark stuff in this story. There's some anti-religious themes, or, you know, anti-cult themes or whatever. This group, this, this religious cult, they're really fixated on inbreeding. To them, that is natural. Both Josh and January's parents were cousins... Well, of course, both would be. They were cousins, and, and the family believes that the closer a bond is, the, the, the more the Lord will speak to them. Clo the, the more family blood is in a child's veins, the more the Lord will speak to that child. That's some dark stuff for me. And I, I don't have time to talk about Game of Thrones, but it was a little bit influenced by that. You know, I was reading uh, Song of Ice and Fire, uh, and it it's funny because the first story, I, I wrote the first story before I had ever probably even heard of the Song of Ice and Fire. And then I, I, you know, I read it, and I have to admit that some of the stuff in that book probably changed what would have happened in the sequel. I, isn't that weird? Like, sometimes I could be reading, like, an old-time book, like a James Fenimore Cooper book or something slightly modern or, like, you know, a John Steinbeck book. And the fact that I'm reading that affects some of the language, some of the dialogue. It just, it's so weird how that can happen. But it, it, it does. Well, there's that. I don't know, I, you hear the term apropos of nothing, and I probably use that in my writing a lot more than I should. I just, I like apropos of nothing. So, The Calling Reunion is out there. I'll include a link to the text version and a link to my audio version. Of course, the audio costs more. You can get it over at Audible, if you'd like. And um, Big Anklevich did a cover for me. He did a the cover art for the first story just because it was a Doonstief episode and that's something that he would do. And so I asked him to to create me a cover that was that was consistent, that looked like a, a match. I, I found a, an image of a headstone, I think, or maybe it was of a cross, or maybe it's, you decide, it's a headstone or a cross. And thank you big for that. Anyway, Putting it out there, as you know, is, is difficult for me because people might not like it. People might not buy it. As long as I never release things, 
no one can ever criticize. No one could ever say the winds of winter was not as good as a dance with dragons. But also, once I put it out there, hopefully the pressure will get turned on to write the third in the, the, the series, in the trilogy. And that will be fun because I have no idea what's going to happen. I've been kicking around a couple ideas just because I'm sort of immersed in those characters and the audio right now. I've been wondering what Josh's ex-wife, Kirsty has been doing during all this time and if maybe she could show up in the third book. We'll see. Hopefully the writing of that one will go smoothly and I can put it out there quicker than two and a half years plus from the day I finish it. I'm doing better. I really am. I'm trying to do better. And uh, it does make me happy. Or, you know, the closest I can come to being happy to write these things, to complete these things, to jump, maybe not head first, but at least feet first into this storytelling sessions. If you do buy the book, feel free to let me know what you think is going to happen in the third book, what plot threads I left dangling, and that you want that third book. Sometimes I do need external pressure because the internal pressure of getting it done is just not enough. Regardless, I have been Rish Outfield, and um, answer the call. No, that's awful. And London calling at the Atabuku. No, I don't know that song or like that song. It's got calling in the title, though. I've absolutely no clever plays on the word calling or on reunion. Yeah, what a weak way to end this episode. But the alternative is not to end it at all. So I think you'll agree that I made the right decision. I will see you soon. Take care. Is this thing on? If you listen carefully, you can hear Rish in the other room. I think he's crying. Look, this show is released under a Creative Commons 3.0 No Derivatives license. That's nothing to cry about, really. Okay, maybe one tear. A manly tear. But Rish really needs people to support him on Patreon. I mean, He's a pathetic barrel full of wet ramen noodles. And not the flavoured kind, either. The kind you have to put that brown dust on just for it to taste like anything. What's going on? Hey, Sean? Are you talking to the listeners? Oh, I'm sure they've turned it off by now. Logo by the talented and generous Gino Moretto. The Rish Outcast is produced under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Download the file, listen to it, copy it, share it, and bring it up as a cautionary tale to frighten young ones into minding their manners. But do not change the files or attempt to sell them. Until next time, I have been Fake Sean Connery. One of the things that was most enjoyable when I was writing this was coming up with details from the McGinty religion. And I, I talked about that already, but something that hopped into my head early, early on, long before I got to that point in the story was, I wanted Josh to go back to one of these meetings. It, him to, you know, have enough respect for his sister and what has happened in his life to say, okay, I will go to a family meeting and uh, we'll see. And I thought it would be really cool if they had a hymn that they all sang. But instead of like, you know, Shall We Gather at the River or Amazing Grace or something like that, a real one, I, I wanted to make up my own. And uh, as I alluded to earlier, 
with writing, you, you know when something feels like it, it's working for you. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to work for an audience. Uh, when I was writing the original Calling, I felt like this is something really special that I've got here. This is something really good. And other people seemed to agree with me. I know uh, my buddy Tom Tancredi really responded to the calling. And so I was happy when I finally got the chance to uh, put this out. Well, <laughs> he still hasn't heard it yet. But he's somebody that I'm hoping really gets a kick out of the sequel. But same thing when I was writing this second one. Uh, when I was writing Calling Reunion, there were moments when I was like, I think this is really working. This is a scene that is, is delightful to write. There's a scene in a bar that I felt like, oh, oh, this is good. And then the scene with the hymn. So what I did was I wrote a, a, something that, from the first story that January says that means, you know, I'm faithful is... In, in the McGinty clan, they say, so-and-so walks with the Lord. And it's just this thing that they say over and over again. It's, it's their, one of their little sayings. And so I decided that I would write a hymn that was about that. And I tried to make it sound as much like a real hymn as possible. This tune, and it's weird, I can still remember it. When I wrote it in 2017, that was the little tune that, it, that I had with it. And in 2019, when I recorded it for the audiobook, I could still remember the tune to the point where I worried that maybe I, it was a real hymn from somewhere that I had heard and I was appropriating. In which case, sorry if that's one of your hymns, but if anything, it, you know, it adds more weight to it, I think. But the other thing that I thought would be fun about the hymn, about writing the hymn, is if there was something a little bit more bent than just, you know, uh, your typical hymn that talks about Jesus or talks about God or heaven or, you know, the Holy Ghost or, 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 the, or something like that. I wanted there to be like a reference to demons and stuff in the hymn. And so, anyhow, as sort of my little post-credits sequence, Iron Man will return. Uh, enjoy the, the hymn. I think it's called... Heed to the voice, and the voice has a capital V, which I guess could mean uh, that it's that NBC uh, singing competition show. Heed to it, folks. Thank you. I will heed the voice, my family, though it come through sight or smell. I will fight our war with devilry. And through me they'll sleep in hell. I know I'm a bold servant, And will heed the voice's word. I can rest with true assurance, I am walking with the Lord. This is Rish Outfield, and greetings, as I said, from 2018. You are in 2000 and <laughs> Hey guys, this is Rish Outfield. Greetings from 2019. I don't know why I asked the question. I'm going to try darn, and I'm going to try damn. I don't know why I asked the question. I knew darn well she had. I knew damn well she had. There are things that you cannot tell, and there are things that you know damn well. 
Wait, I don't know. All right, I'm excited about this chapter. Chapter 19, the singing chapter. 19. Spoke of our divine mission, of the blessedness we had to be part of this family. Is that a good word? Blessedness? I'm going to try it with blessing. I'm going to try it with good fortune. Of the, of the blessing we had to be part of this. Of the blessing we had to be a part of this family. Of the, of the good fortune we had to be a part of this family. Yeah, I think that's better. But everything was lit with colored fluorescence, making it seem like a diner in a sci-fi movie. It smelled wonderful in there. <laughs> Apparently, I don't know how to spell fluorescence. Guess what? I never will. Fluor. Ew. I smiled back, but it was only cursory. Do you hear that? What is that? A motorcycle? An inbound ballistic missile? God, that was loud. You heard that, right? There was a flash in her head of faces, Colton's included, and one that had to be her daughter's, who had died in this constant struggle with changelings. Ooh, instead of constant, let's come up with a never-ending, interminable, invariable, unvarying, endless, relentless. There you go, that's the one. Perpetual struggle, uh, and one that had to be your daughter's, who had died, who had died in this relentless struggle with the changelings. And she was still pretty in an MMA fight, in an MMA, in an MMA, in an MMA fit in an MMA fighter sort of way, in an MMA fighter sort of way. There are things that you cannot tell, and there are things that you know damn well. This is getting very hard for me. Something about my secret chalupi. Chalupa. Um, it's been frozen for over a minute. Oh, it just unfroze. 